listening to the Bible 126 show. Genesis. We uh, anticipate doing it in 12 sessions, and we're in the 21st of those uh, 24 sessions. And uh, we're going to we're now getting into the story of Joseph. We're going to deal with chapters 37 through 40 tonight. And uh, they, that sounds like a lot, but they're actually pretty short chapters. And uh, we've been, of course, in the book of Genesis, part one. We went through 14 sessions for that portion of the book of Genesis that some people call prehistory, the first 11 chapters. Uh, but we sort of shifted gears at chapter 12 as we got into the narrative of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. You'll probably notice as we go from session 20 through tw to 21, we're going to shift gears again. We're going to have what really should be a shooting script. I mean, it's just an incredible drama, story of Joseph, in any of several different dimensions. It's just a captivating narrative. And... Uh, it has many aspects to it. First of all, it's just an enjoyable story, a story of betrayal, and then, and then uh, uh, the, the, the ousted brother becomes the prime minister of the world, and, and so forth, and all, all of this accomplishes God's purpose in a, an amazing way. But it's also an exciting narrative. I'm going to give you a test, in a sense, not a written one, but you should give yourself a written test, because it will become obvious as you embrace the story of Joseph, that there are peculiar parallels. And um, I have not really, I've tried not to overemphasize that as we've gone through the earlier parts of Genesis, because if you're going just through lightly the first time, it may sound a little strange. But when you go through it next time, the book of Genesis, when you read it, I want you to be sensitive to the fact that the Holy Spirit deliberately has embroidered this with parallels to Jesus Christ. In fact, I've made the statement many times, you'll find Jesus Christ on every page in Genesis. The amazing thing about Genesis isn't the creation all that. That's fun, sure, but is that you'll find analogies, types, figures of speech that point to the Messiah on every page. That's really what it's all about. In, jo in the story of Joseph, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a challenge. In addition to the normal notes you might be taking on another place, make, start making a list of the parallels between Joseph and Jesus Christ. Arthur W. Pink lists over a hundred. And you may say, well, that's going a little too far, and maybe it is, but, but uh, you'll discover, I'll, I'll highlight a few of those. I won't do too many because it, it can d distract the, the, the mainstream of the study. But also, I'll mention a few to get, give you the flavor of it. And you'll, you'll, it's, it's amazing. The more you see, the more you will see. At first it sounds strange until you start looking for them. When you start looking for them, some of them are quite astonishing. But we're going to spend, we spent two sessions on Abraham, two sessions on Isaac, and two sessions on Jacob. We're going to spend three on Joseph. And that will leave us the one to handle the prophetic announcements of Jacob to the 12 tribes at the end of the book. And uh, it'll be a good, the last session will be a wrap-up uh, in many ways. And so, so uh, we are going to go to chapter 37. This is the famous chapter of where jo this young Joseph has these dreams that become prophetic. 
They become prophetic not only for the family, they become prophetic for you and me because without one of those dreams you will not understand Revelation 12. It astonishes me to see how many commentaries in the book of Revelation totally miss chapter, the implication of chapter 12 because they haven't read chapter 37. Because Jacob himself interprets chapter 12 of Revelation for you. I'll show you when we get there. Then we'll talk about this bizarre episode in Genesis 38. In fact, many commentaries sort of treat it like something that's been inserted here because it's sort of, it's out of the step, the pace of Joseph. He has his dreams, he gets betrayed, sent to Egypt. You know all that story, that's forthcoming. Here's this bizarre chapter where Judah has this tragic mess with his daughter-in-law. But you're going to be startled with the implications of that. Why is it here? For lots of reasons, some of which may surprise you. And then, of course, you know the story. Joseph gets betrayed by his brothers and gets imprisoned in Egypt. And, uh, and uh, he's, we'll leave him there until next session where it all gets kind of exciting. But chapter 37. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. I might mention, speaking of Jacob, because we're going to shift now talking about Joseph. But before I leave Jacob, we, last time we talked about Jacob wrestling. And uh, there were many comments afterwards as we were having a little coffee afterwards. Um, I may not have emphasized that. Some people think that, well, that wrestling was maybe spiritual or a vision or just a bad dream or something. And uh, there are even commentators that take that view. Wait a minute, guys. Dreams don't get your hips dislocated. He was physically wrestling. And so uh, I don't want to re revisit all of that, but I just want to underscore for your notes to go back and look at that. That is a very, very interesting, strange thing. Well, well, but in any case, we're going to um, see that uh, Jacob here is dwelling in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And uh, it's, uh, 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 he had no chiefs. He had his, he had his 11 sons. And, uh, but he's a sojourner. He's a stranger in this land. And uh, so uh, it's a, a secular worldly greatness usually comes more swiftly than spiritual greatness. It took Jacob quite a time to really uh, get his act together. That's what that wrestling episode really is in some sense a peak, a peak of. But uh, we now find that uh, here are the generations in verse 2 of, of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old. Let's remember he is 17 at the, at the time that we're going to see these uh, young events. He's young and yet in their, their culture that's uh, almost not fully grown but close. Anyway, Joseph, being 17 years of old, and was feeding the flock with his brethren. And uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Hebrew implies oversight or superintendence uh, is implied. And uh, this, he's apparently the post of it as a chief shepherd uh, may either be because he was favored by Jacob because he was the son of his favored wife. You understand there's sort of three levels. There are the sons of the concubines, they're always subordinate to Leah and Rachel, but even among the, the direct sons of Leah and Rachel, Rachel's sons were more dear to Jacob because he loved Rachel so intensely. So that may be one of the reasons. But also, this guy was, some people call him a tattletale, but he was very candid in reporting to the father the sins of the sons of the concubines. I get the impression that they were all a pretty bad bunch, but the sons of the concubines were particularly sort of the out considered outsiders by the others. You can see, you get the feeling of it. So the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, the father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. 
Now you can, it's cause and effect here. You'd say, well, he brought the report because he was, in he was put in charge by Jacob. That's, that's apparently true. And the flip side is also, that's maybe one reason he's in charge, because he was candid and let Jacob know what the, what the score really was. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of presentations of Jacob make him quite a tattletale. Um, you do get the impression from the subsequent verses that he was pretty ingenuous. He's pretty naive about the way he said things. He didn't, he didn't allow for the, the, the reactions of the people to his study, as you'll see in a minute. Anyway, get to verse 3. Now Israel, that is uh, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. This... Um, this is a translational problem that no one has really quite resolved. You'll never separate the myths of the coat of many colors with, from the reality. So I'm not going to badger this too much, but the, the word in the Hebrew that implies it was of many colors has, is, is very enigmatic. Some scholars feel it was a patchwork of many colored cloths because dyes were, the dye technology was not where we're used to it today. It's not like you have a coat of many colors by other cleverness or things, so the implication would be it was a patchwork of many, many colored cloths. That's many people think that, and clearly the intent here, it's richly ornamented. But it also turns out that the, the, ter the term can also mean a coat with sleeves. Most of the tunics did not have sleeves, and it was a coat with sleeves. And so, strangely enough, the main point, though, is, is that he if he had a long sleeve robe, the intent was that whatever it was, it was special. It was unique. It was distinctive. And uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, Jacob was probably highlighting the fact that it would be through that son that the divine blessings would flow. And that's true. But that very robe was destined to be covered with blood to speak of Joseph's apparent death later. And there's an irony brewing here because Jacob cheated his father with, the, with a similar stunt. So there's an, there's an irony here brewing. I, don't, I won't leave it for a punchline. I want you to sense it as it comes, you see. But anyway, so we have this famous coat of many colors. And whether it's many colors or long-sleeved or whatever, clearly it's highly ornamented and a very key uh, uh, thing and clearly indicates that Jacob favored him above all the rest. And because he was the firstborn of Rachel, the son of his old age, and he also apparently was a cool guy. He also apparently was very good looking, partly because he was from Rachel, who was also very good looking. And so that'll come to be uh, something that'll haunt him uh, a little bit later. But it's interesting if you study this in a pragmatic sense, uh, the, these chapters of Genesis we've been in highlight the dangers that come from parental favoritism among the children. All the way back, we see that same uh, thing happening. And I suspect we all, in various ways, are guilty of that. But we need to guard against that. Because that's, I think, one of, one of the, the practical lessons that come out of all of this. But anyway, uh, getting to verse 4, when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, that's something, you know, you can't keep a secret. It shows up. The kids know that. They see it even when it's not there. You know. um, they hated him. And could not speak peaceably unto him. Okay, that's the background. Now we have this first of two episodes. Joseph dreamed a dream. Okay, you can't help that. But then he ingenuously told his brothers, Hey, guess what dream I had last night, guys? Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it 
his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. You want to understand why? Listen to the dream. He said, he said to them, here I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. Okay? And uh, by the way, I, I should mention something else. Um, these, it's interesting through the scripture uh, how God uses dreams. That doesn't mean some dream you have is necessarily from God. Don't miss it. You can, don't carry this too far. But at the same time, it's clear that God did use that mechanism several times. And uh, he usually did it in the land of the pagans. And uh, he announced to uh, uh, Abraham in a dream that the Egyptian bondage was going to take place back in chapter 15, you may recall. Um, he promised his protection to Jacob uh, in a sojourn with Laban in chapter 28 and so forth. And now we're going to see a couple of dreams in which it's going to lay out the future of Israel in the world. So he says, uh, For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. That's in this dream. They're binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf ro arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my, my sheaf. Now that went over great, you know. I mean, it didn't take a lot of insight to try to infer what this is trying to communicate. His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? They got the message, you know. Or, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him uh, yet the more for his dreams and for his words. You can't help but sort of get the impression the kid was a little naive. Having the dreams one thing, you know, and sharing it with mom would be great. But, and maybe even with dad under the right circumstances, but not to your sibling rivals. Come on, guys. In any case... If you're going to do it once, let's do it again. He dreamed yet another dream. <laughs> and he told his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. Now this time, he even got dad upset. Okay? And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, Notice what Jacob says. What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee on the earth? Jacob recognized in the idioms of the dream that the eleven stars represented his brothers, but the sun and the moon was Jacob and his wife in the, in the symbolism of the dream. Remember that. Um, because when you get to, Genesis, uh, when you get to Revelation... Chapter 12, by the way, something else you can take on as a student assignment sometime is make a list of the parallels between Genesis and Revelation. Everything that starts in Genesis, and that's almost everything, has its climax in Revelation. The two books almost are designed side by side. Everything that started is finished, and it links. But in, Gen in Revelation chapter 12, there is a summary of the seed of the woman. And it's, it speaks of some personages, and one of the principal personages is a woman with 12 stars and uh, sun and the moon at her feet and so forth. And some people say, well, that's the zodiac. And other people think, well, that's the church. Well, if that's, that, that woman is the church in Revelation, she's in trouble because she's pregnant. Church is supposed to be the virgin bride, right? And, of course, the, the woman gives birth to the child, a man-child. Uh, but here, Jacob really, every, everything in Revelation is in code, but every code is explained somewhere else in Scripture. That makes it such a fabulous treasure hunt to go through those things. But anyway, you can link this, if you will, to Revelation 12. We'll move on here. And he told it to his father and his brethren. Oh, I got that. Okay. And uh, Jacob interprets it for us. And then in verse 11, 
And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. This to me echoes the same thing that Mary did. When, there was, when she got that, when he was 12 years old and he was at the temple and so forth, she kept, she, the last little line there, he, she kept these things in her heart. So it's kind of a strange episode, but she recognized there was more there than meets the eye. And Jacob, I think, uh, pondered this too. Because on one hand, he, was, he, he apparently sort of joins his brethren in being, you know, in uh, being uh, confronted with this uh, uh, thing on the one hand. On the other hand, he, he observed it. Mulled it over, reflected on it, and so forth. And uh, so, but this all is, both dreams obviously reflect the elevation of Joseph over the house of Jacob. Indeed, he will be in some, both in a secular sense and some other ways. His brethren went, now that's changing, we don't know how much time slips by here, but anyways, brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Now, Shechem. Is about uh, is about 50 miles north uh, of Hebron, and uh, or it's the Valley of Hebron. It's going from there to uh, to Shechem is about 50 miles, and we're going to encounter another village called Dothan, which is yet another 15 miles. So there's a 65 mile distance here, which is uh, not is non trivial. The Valley of Shechem is very uh, was very known for abundance of water, and uh, uh, so they it took them at least 20 hours to get there, especially if they're going with sheep and so forth, and uh, so uh, there's a lot of conjectures. Why did they go up there? One is that for the availability of water, and, and uh, one reason they went out 15 miles further is they probably weren't too popular in Shechem. If you recall what Benjamin did because of Dinah back a chapter or so ago. Anyway, so Israel, or Jacob, said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. He said to him, Here am I. He said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he went out, so he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Glibly said, but you're talking, you know, several days. And, uh, and a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, says, what, seekest thou? what seekest thou? He said, I seek my brethren, tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. The man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw them afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. They are upset. They probably are upset because they didn't like him in the first place, but they also probably assumed that they better do that or he will be over them. You follow me? And they said to one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. The Hebrew actually is the master of dreams, cometh. Come now therefore and let us slay him and cast him into some pit and we will say some evil beast had devoured him and we shall see what shall, come, what shall become of his dreams. See, part of this rivalry thing is the dynamic here as well as the interpersonal thing. And uh, so... Remember, these guys plotted before to kill the uh, Shechemites to revenge their sister, remember? Uh, back in chapter 34. And uh, now they're, gonna, they're plotting to kill their own brother. This all, you know, these, these are bad guys. Um, it's interesting, in, in uh, John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, 
it makes reference to this, says, speaking to him, not as Cain, as who, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you, is John's point. We should not be surprised that the world hates us for lots of reasons, and uh, some of them in parallel to the situation here, some not. But in any case, uh, so they're, 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 consider, you know, they're considered rivals. Now, Reuben, who is the eldest, he heard it, and he delivered them out of their hands. He said, let us not kill him. Reuben's going to suggest this business. Well, let's go on and just read the next verse. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. In other words, Reuben is suggesting, instead of killing him, let's just throw him in this pit. And what's implied here is that Reuben figured he could sneak back later and get him and send him home, save his life. So that, that's to his credit, at least. That he, at least uh, that was his concept. And so um, um, this pit, by the way, was probably an empty cistern. It's, you figure just a, di you, a pit, you figure he could climb out. No, a cistern is probably what it was. The, the land is replete with cisterns because water is so precious, and so when it did rain, they got a cistern. Here's a, a cistern that is dry that they threw him into. And uh, it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. They took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So they took his fancy tunic and... Uh, they're going to use that as a, a mechanism to convince the father he's been killed. And uh, uh, they, they, they uh, have him in this pit. They sat down to eat bread. They lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh and going to carry it down to Egypt. These people are called Midianites in, in uh, chapter 37 and verse 28, and they're called Medianites. That's another parallel. Both son, they're both sons of Keturah, of, of Abraham, um, in, in verse 36. So it's apparently a traveling caravan of both Midianites and Medianites, which are not sons of Ishmael, by the way. But the term Ishmaelite tends to be a catch-all for these, other, uh, the, these descendants of both Hagar and Keturah. Understand? So just because they call them Ishmaelites doesn't mean they're sons of Ishmael. People get confused by that. That's a, a label. It's sort of a collective. It's used that way in the scripture. Because Ishmaelites technically were descendants of Hagar from chapter 16, you may recall. And the Midianites and the, uh, were, from, were from Keturah in chapter 37 and also in 25. So uh, it's a general designation. And so, by the way, if you're at Dothan, it's very easy to see. You could actually see in the distance. You can see, the, you could see, see them... Uh, 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 in the, uh, on the plain, because it crosses from the from the Jordan across to uh, the south on the south side of the mountain Galboa. So, this all fits the topography. And they were with spice. Let's see, they were carrying bearing spicery and balm and myrrh. Those were elements that uh, spicery came from India, and uh, balm from Gilead, the balm of Gilead from the balsam tree, and of course myrrh was a a. a uh, a spice that, you, that gave its fragrance by crushing. These all three were in great demand in Egypt because of why? Anyone know? Good for you. Yes, they're used for embalming, and that's, that's a major industry in Egypt. So uh, this is, it's interesting that uh, that's anyway, part, of the, part of the background here. 
Anyway, they say, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our own brother in our flesh. <laughs> and his brethren were content. You know, we're not going to kill him. We'll sell him into slavery, because after all, he's our brother, you know. I, uh, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I'm not trying to mean that, because it certainly is less, uh, you know, than actually taking his life. And yet, um, <laughs> anyway, speaks for itself. Um, then, then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. And uh, now this is, you know, obviously you can begin to see a couple of things here. Here's Joseph. He's got a, a, a robe that people are after. That's exactly, remember Jesus on the cross. They cast lots for his vesture. Um, here's a, he, here he is uh, betrayed by his brothers. He came into his own, his own received him not, and so on. Um, and he's betrayed. He said, gee, why wasn't he betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Wouldn't that have fit perfectly? Can anybody tell, any, anyone tell me why it, it's 20 and not 30? Colossians tells you that in Jesus he'll be preeminent in all things. Okay, so I'll just use that as my refuge as a, you know, Colossians 1.18. But uh, in any case, so he actually gets sold into slavery. Now Reuben, in the meantime, he apparently was away because Reuben returns to the pit. Behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. He was really upset because Reuben apparently had his heart set on being able to deliver the kid back home. And he returned to his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in blood. And uh, they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This we found. Know, not, know now whether it be thy son's coat or not. Gee, do you think it's his coat? Obviously it's his coat. Yeah. And he knew it. He said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And uh, it's really, uh, again, a form of deceit that's, that's ironic. Because Jacob had deceived his own father, Isaac, using his brother's tunic and the skins of a goat. See the parallels. Here again, it's the tunic of the brothers. It's, it's, uh, it's the skin of a goat as part of the, the uh, emblems that are being uh, employed here. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. The word, by the, this is a mistranslation, the word is not grave. I want you to be sensitive to the distinction between the grave and Sheol. A grave is the abode of the body. You can own a grave. You can sell a grave. It's a physical thing. Sheol is the abode of the departed spirits. No one can own, and there's one, there's not many. There are many graves, there's one Sheol. It has two compartments, we learned from Luke 16. And uh, uh, it's interesting that it's spoken of there by Jesus himself as Abraham's bosom. That's the good side of, of Sheol, which in the Greek would be the Hades. Sheol and Hades are not Gehenna. That's a whole different thing. This is, uh, it, Hades is often translated hell in our Bibles. No, it's Hades. Gehenna is what we think of as hell. It's that, Hades is temporary. It's going to be cast into hell ultimately. But anyway, the point is, he, here's Jacob. He says, I will go down into Sheol unto my son. He expects to be with his son in Sheol. We learn from Luke 16 that people in Sheol are conscious. 
They're very aware. The rich man that's in Sheol is in torment, but he's very aware of Lazarus, who's also in the good part of Sheol, in Abram's bosom. So there's an awareness. It's interesting, too, that there's no repentance. He, he, there's an acknowledgment of their sin. The, he rec the, the rich man there understands. There's a lot you can learn by restudying Luke 16 carefully. In any case, this is Jacob's model. This is what he understands. He'll be with, uh, I'll go to the, uh, unto the grave, uh, unto Sheol, unto my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Jacob is really upset. I want you to understand Jacob's heart because it's going to be very material in the subsequent chapters as the whole drama of Joseph unfolds. And, uh, and then it goes on and says, And the Midianites sold him into Egypt. Now notice the, here, here again we have Midianites and Midianites, are labels in the scriptures. Though so the Ishmaelites is sort of a collective connotative term. They're not using it denotatively, they're using it connotatively or suggestively. And so Midianites clearly are not sons of Ishmael, they're sons of Keturah, as I mentioned. But anyway, the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Now, he, uh, the word in the Hebrew implies a eunuch, but you want to be careful with that term. Often, senior officials at court were castrated to be eunuchs in certain roles, but the term doesn't necessarily mean castrated. It means an officer of the court is what the term actually means. This, Pharaoh, this the Potiphar has a wife, as we'll see, who's very much in the story. And uh, so... Uh, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it can be chamberlains, it can be courtiers, it can be uh, officers of different kinds. Now, he was a captain. Now, the term captain here isn't the way you, we use the term, but he's the chief official. He's the chief of the execution, executioners. It could be the chief of the slaughtermen, people who, slaughter, who were responsible for killing the animals for, for the sacrifice and that sort of thing. And by some uh, uh, careful scholarship, by certain commentaries, this was probably about 1898 B.C., I don't hang too tightly to the chronologies because I've got dozens of studies, all detailed, all different, bearing not by a lot, but still there's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a tough area to get into for, you're, you're immersed in all kinds of technicalities very quickly. But there, anyway, to give, to give you a rough feeling, this is called 1900 B.C. roughly. And uh, that, uh, so that, the way they do that, they date from Solomon's temple back and, and try to work it that way. But in any case, uh, we're now at chapter 38. Now, we're going to pick up in chapter 39 the whole tale of Joseph again, because he's in Egypt. But in the meantime, we have chapter 38. And many people are puzzled, why is it here? Well, I never use the word why in the scripture together too much, because that's God's purpose. But there's certainly, this, there's a strange event that occurs with Judah and Tamar. Not only is it a strange event, but it turns out to be very important for your perspective of the, the whole Bible. It's not just a little sordid tale. It has some other implications. So let's jump into it. It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned in to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. Now this is a pagan friend of his. He's an Adullamite, but he's a good buddy of, of Judah here. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. So in other words, he took a Canaanite wife. That's his first mistake. They weren't supposed to do that, but you can tell they weren't, you know, walking by the word. Uh, these, these brothers, the sons of Jacob, are an unruly bunch, as you've already seen by their conduct. Anyway, he takes a, he takes a Canaanite, a pagan wife, named Shua, and he took her and went in there, and she conceived and bare a son, and called his name Er. And that's what he does. He errs. 
she conceived again and bare a son and called his name Onan. And she again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. So now he's got three sons by this pagan wife. And he was at Chesib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. So Ur is his son. So Tamar is his daughter-in-law. Okay? But verse 7 tells us that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. We have no idea what it was that he did wrong, and we have no idea uh, how he died, specifically. But what we need to know is what's here, that he, did, he was wicked and God took him. So Ur is out of the picture, which gives rise to the rest of the tale. And Judah said to Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. This is an allusion to what's called Leverite marriage. We'll talk about that in a minute because it's going to get, it was the practice in these days, but it also gets codified in the Torah under Moses later. This is Genesis. That happens in Deuteronomy 25. Okay? But the idea was that when you had a situation like this where the husband died without issue, that there'd be no inheritance. So the brother of the dead was, had, didn't have the obligation. Uh, he, he wasn't rigid, but he, his responsibility was to take her to wife, raise up seed to the dead son. This turns out to be very important in a number of places in the scripture. You need to understand Leverite marriage. It doesn't come, it doesn't come from the word Levi. It comes from the Latin. The word Leverite marriage comes from the Latin, which means the husband's brother. That's what the term comes from, strangely. Anyway, so what Judah, the father, says to his second son here, he says to Onan, take, take her and raise up seed. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. It came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest that he should give seed to his brother. So he, he, <laughs> he took advantage of the social custom to satisfy his lust. But he made sure that he spilled his seed on the ground so there would be no issue, which is... Bizarre, in a sense, see, if you're going to do it, okay, let her have the kid. I mean, you know, that's her thing. But, see, that's, he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to, so he spilled on the ground. So, and so this thing, of course, displeased the Lord. So, wherefore, he slew him also. Big mistake, Onan. Shouldn't have done that. So, I love a right marriage. As I say, it comes from Levere, husband's brother in Latin. It's codified the Torah in Deuteronomy 25. The reason I want you to really be aware of this, it's very important when you get to the book of Ruth, because the book of Ruth is a fabulous little tiny four-chapter book that's probably the most important book in the Old Testament for the church. Strangely enough, that may sound like a contradiction in terms, that there's, the church was hidden. The fact that Gentiles be saved is not hidden in the Old Testament, but the mystical church was hidden in the Old Testament. Paul, in Ephesians 3, has the privilege of revealing that to us. And Jesus makes allusions to it in a strange way in Matthew 13. But in any case, the book of Ruth turns out to be just a gem. But part of the whole drama in the book of Ruth is the role of the kinsman redeemer in the Hebrew, the Goel. And uh, the kinsman redeemer in Ruth from chapters 1, just a little four-chapter book. And without, you will not understand Revelation chapter 5 unless you understand the book of Ruth. So it's an essential part of your homework background to really get, that, get into that. But let's get back to Genesis 38. So then... Meanwhile, understand Judah's predicament. He's lost two of his three sons. Okay? So he's not too excited about this whole program. He said, Then said Judah to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, 
till Shelah my son be grown. He apparently was very young. Um, for he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. So she's supposed to hang around till the younger boy is old enough to marry. That's the idea, I guess. It, it gets worse. Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shears to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. So, okay, um, Judah's now without a wife, and one of the things, don't misunderstand my rec re recording of this, it, I'm not condoning it, but one of the things he indulged in was to resort to what was a religious prostitute. We're talking pagans here. And, um, and hire, uh, so they're up, sheep shearing. Now, the sheep shearing thing was a party. The sheep shearing season, which usually occurs at the end of March, um, it's spent uh, with more than the usual hilarity and, and feasting and the wealthiest masters through big banquets. So when it says going up to the sheep shearers, yes, they did work, but it was also party time. And he's up there with his buddy, uh, Hira, uh, up near Timnath, which is the mountains of Judea. Now, when they're up there, it's, to it's told to Tamar. By the way, they're up there having this party. She says, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep and a party and so forth. And she put on she put her widow's garments off from her, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. That should almost be put first. In other words, she's been waiting around for Shelah to grow up. He's now grown up, and she's aware of the fact that he hasn't been given to her to wife. So she's going to try to take things into her own hand to get a Leverite uh, uh, marriage, in effect. So, uh, she, in other words, if she can get pregnant from the family, it'll count, as in, in her mind. So, so, uh, when, so she masquerades as a temple prostitute up there, adorns herself with a veil, which apparently was the style in those days. Um, and when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot. And... Uh, the, the word is actually Kedeshot. It's, it's like a temple prostitute. And I don't mean a Jewish temple. I'm talking about a pagan temple. And uh, so she really is tricking him uh, into illicit relationship with her. So anyway, because she had covered her face, so she didn't recognize And he turned unto her by the way and said, um, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For obviously he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? He says, I will send uh, thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? So she wasn't born yesterday, okay? You know, promises are one thing. Give me something, give me, a, you know, a pledge of some kind, that something worth more than the kid that I'll give you back when I get the kid, is the idea, okay? And so, uh, a kid, of course, a kid of goats here. He said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And so, uh, by the way, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, seal, the signet, is probably something that was perforated and hung around his neck. It's a little confusing there because the, the language speaks, of the, uh, the word uh, translated bracelets is elsewhere translated like, a, like ribbon. So it, whether, it was, whether it was around his staff or around his neck is a point of scholastic debate. But anyway, the point is these are obviously identity pieces. This is like giving her his credit card, okay? Um, with a picture on it, okay. So uh, anyway, uh, so she conceived by him. She arose, went her way, laid by her veil from her, and put back on the garments of her widowhead. 
Okay? And Judah sent the kid by the, the hand of his friend, the Adullamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. Now, he sent his buddy with the kid to go get his stuff, and he found her not. And then he asked the men of that place, saying, where's the harlot that was openly by the wayside? They said, there's no harlot in this place. He turned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this place. Judah said, well, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. Well, it came to pass, about three months after, that it was told to Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. Imagine how that went over with Judah. Self-righteous Judah. Huh? Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. <laughs> you know, this is another time that Jacob's family is being deceived by deception. And uh, this time by a Canaanite daughter-in-law. So this is getting messy. Now you may say, I know when I first saw this Bert thing, I was sort of surprised, did a little homework. I find that the crime of adultery was anciently punished in many places by burning. You find it in Leviticus 21, verse 9, Judges 15, verse 6, and Jeremiah 29, 22, just to give you a few examples. Two of those three are pagan situations, but the point is apparently that was a practice. Clearly, uh, adultery and so forth was a capital crime in Israel, but it was also punished even in the pagan places if, uh, in, in, on occasion, and it was done by burning in those cases. Anyway, she's brought forth. She sent to her father and saying, By the man whose these are, I am with child. Can, can you visualize this scene? Can you visualize the self-righteous father-in-law ready to commit her to death for this act? Okay, who's the guy? By the man whose these are, I am with child, she said. Discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet, bracelets, and staff. <laughs> That's got to be one of those great scenes, you know. <laughs> Judah acknowledged them. And I want you to notice his perception here. He said, she hath been more righteous than I. He recognized, he recognized the situation as he realized it was her, that he'd been tricked. He recognized it was his fault, not hers. Because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son. And he knew her again no more. Obviously, he didn't continue with her. But he did acknowledge her, in effect, gave her stature, and that the two sons turn out to be very important to us, surprisingly important to us. It came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. Don't confuse these two twins with you know, the Esau Jacob and the other twins before. They're far more important. But here, we do have twins again. Something very strange happens here. It came to pass when she travailed, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound his hand with a scarlet thread, saying, this came out first. That may strike us as strange. Here you got a midwife. She's giving birth. A hand comes out. It was very important to them legally who's firstborn, because the firstborn gets double inheritance, gets all kinds of... The firstborn is a title. That word doesn't just mean that he's firstborn. It's a title. Jesus Christ is spoken as the firstborn of creation. That doesn't mean he was created. That doesn't mean he's, you know, he was the first of many. It's a title of, of, of stature. Anyway, this one came out first. In the next verse, And it came to pass, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name is called Perez, or Perez, which means breach. 
So it's very strange. The first one really out was the second in the line, so to speak. And there again, you've got some interesting issues here. See, by man's reckoning, the first one would be senior. By God's reckoning, the second one will turn out to be more relevant. I'll see you in a minute. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. And so uh, there we are. Now, it's interesting that um, all the way through this narrative, we have um, playing out some of these oracles that we've heard about before. You may recall that the line of Judah continued. You'll discover the line of Judah continued because of her and these kids. See, the line, the line of Judah had to prevail over all the others. Judah's sons are a zero. See, so this strange enough will be out of Judah himself and his daughter-in-law. He said, boy, this is pretty weird. But, um, uh, because, but because the offspring will end up ruling, ruling over the whole house of Israel. And uh, so, see, even his brothers had sold Joseph into Egypt, all thinking they could thwart God's design. All these steps are attempts by someone, maybe well-intended in a sense of speaking, to thwart God's program. And, uh, it, uh, uh, and here, even in Judah's own family, in his attempts to thwart Tamar's own marriage, we got God's confirmation of the principle that the elder will serve the younger. So God is reversing things here. Uh, this is going to be important for another reason. Now, I'll tell you something that's very, very strange. Let's stop for a minute. I, I, I've spared you a lot of this kind of thing in this study because it can be too much distracting. But I have to share with you this little tidbit. If for no other reason, you will not find it in any commentary you're likely to pick up. Okay. Um, this is the text of in Hebrew of Genesis 38 that we've been reading. And uh, this, uh, this I discovered in a journal article uh, from the professionals from the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and Israel in 1987. I happened to find it in my library looking for something else, and I stumbled on this little tidbit, and it just absolutely blew me away. It turns out that if you look, there are three letters in here that are separated by 49, they're an interval of 49, okay? These three letters here happen to spell out the name of Boaz. Well, that's kind of interesting. So, well, well, come on, Chuck. The 49, the 49, interval 49, you've got three letters that spell Boaz. They happen to be backwards, by the way. It's, in Hebrew, it's spelled backwards. I'll come back to that. There are also three letters. Bear in mind, Hebrew goes from right to left, so this second name comes next. And that's three letters that spell the name Ruth. Now, that's kind of when you say, well, this is Genesis 38. We're not even in the book of Judges or the book of Ruth with Boaz and Ruth and all that. We'll get to that a little bit later. I'll, I want to review some things here. But that's kind of curious. Let's go further in the chapter. There are three letters, again, for always 49-letter intervals that happen to spell their child, Obed. 49-letter intervals, you got the second name, or third name. You go again, and there's three more letters that happen to spell Yishai, or what we would call Jesse, the son of Obed. You go a little further in the book, you get three more letters that spell the name David. Now let's just stop for a second. We have five people here 
that uh, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. Each name is encrypted by an equidistant letter sequence with the interval of 49. You've got five of them, but here's the corker. They are in chronological order. You're looking at the family tree from Boaz down to David. The no, we let this sink in. The family tree of D King David is encrypted in the book of Genesis in chapter 38. This is in the this is book of Moses. I don't care how smart you think he was or how clever he was in encryption. Did he know that Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David that would be the line of the king of uh, uh, of Israel? You see what I'm saying? This is mine to me. This this makes my 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 skin my hair curl. This is, blows it as you start trying, at first it's one of these curious, little oddities and that curious until you start thinking about it. And then I was I was troubled. Well, okay, why is it backwards? All three names are in there it, technically on a computer. The, the interval is minus 49. In other words, the the three letters, the names are spelled backwards. Well, when you get to the book of Esther, you find a lot of these kinds of things. And where it's back, it's backwards, some are backwards, some are forwards. The ones that are backwards are where man's trying to thwart the plan of God. And it hit me, just, just as I'm getting ready for the study tonight. That's, I think, what's happening here. God is not only declaring the relevance of all of these, and I'll show you some relevance that we have to come, but not only did he has them encrypted here in advance, I don't think you could have gone through there and predicted the genealogy. That's not, God does not want you to use these things for divination. That's where all these characters that write these screwy books are way off base. What they're here for is to glorify God in retrospect. We look back here and say, wow, God. You follow me? He gets the glory. But he's also got it backwards here because each one of these things, this whole family tree thing, was what the house of Jacob was trying to thwart. Interesting. All 49-letter intervals, all in chronological order. You want to do the math on that, you're out in Neverland. You're out in Neverland. I won't bore you with the math. But I want to stop here because it will have some other implications. Uh, we have, I think we've got the time here. I can indulge in a little bit of diversion. Um, I want to review with you briefly the book of Ruth. We're in Genesis. We'll be in Egypt. After that comes the Exodus. And they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and all that. And then it's quite some time that Joshua goes in and conquers the land. After Joshua comes the book of Judges. At the end of the book of Judges, you have the book of Ruth. Okay? In the days the Judges ruled. Is when we understand where Ruth is. That's a, minute, a lot later. Ruth is the ultimate love story in at least two ways. It's a love story that's studied in most college literature classes as one of the most elegant little stories you can find anywhere. Short, brief, exquisitely organized. But it's also the ultimate love story because it talks about the ultimate love of the Redeemer for you and me. That's that. So at the, at the literary level and also at the prophetic and also personal level. It's one of the most significant books for the church in the Old Testament. Lots of important things in the Old Testament, but the book that turns out, surprisingly enough, to in effect be elliptically focusing right on the church because it has the role of the kinsman Redeemer and it's an essential prerequisite for the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 5. As you study the Bible, you discover there's always relevance to the tenth man. From Adam, come, you come down to Noah. Remember those ten? We talked about that back there. Then from Shem to Amram is another ten. 
and from Isaac to Boaz. Nothing. So these three, Noah, Abraham, and Boaz, are key people in a biblical uh, relevance situation. Now the book of Ruth, chapter 1, talks about the love's resolve. Ruth, this pagan, this Moabitess, clings to her mother-in-law. Her parents, her husband died, her, and so did Ruth. So we'll take a quick look at that. So she, that's her resolve. She really resolves to become whatever Naomi is. She's going to go and be in her country. I'll show you that in a minute. Then love's response to that. Ruth is gleaning and taking care of Naomi. We'll talk about that a little bit. Then we have a very misunderstood passage in chapter 3. I'll call it love's request. Love's resolve, love's response, love's request. The thrashing floor scene, which I want to touch on. And then the final climax of the whole thing is love's reward. The redemption of both the land to Naomi and the bride to Boaz. And so, in the days of Judges ruled. See, the family, famine drives the family. These are, these are Bethlehem natives. Elimelech and Naomi have two sons, Malan and Kilian, and they leave Bethlehem because there's a famine. They go to Moab. And their names are very significant. I won't get into, it turns out when you study this book, every little detail has about three or four levels of meaning. So I won't, I won't get into all of that. But to make a long story short, Malan and Kilian, who means unhealthy and puny, they die. That's part of the problem. They married Moabite women, but then pass away, as did Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And so Naomi tries to tell her daughters-in-law, hey, you got, a, you got your lives ahead. If you stay here, I'm going back home, because 10 years have gone by, and things are back, better back in Bethlehem. So she deters them from following him. One was Orpah, and uh, she, doesn't want to leave, she didn't want to leave Naomi either, but she finally does yield. Uh, Naomi must be quite a mother-in-law, because these, both these daughters want to hang on to her. Ruth refuses to leave her. And uh, so there's a famous passage that I had to include literally in here where Ruth says to Naomi, Entreat me not to leave thee nor to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee in me. This is her commitment to her mother-in-law. Impressive young lady. The Lord rewards that. Well, the next chapter, it's, it was, you have to, part of the value of the book, you need to understand some of the ancient laws. One is the law of gleaning. Because what they did in those days, if you owned land, you could have, your harvesters could go through once and only once. Whatever you missed was for the destitute. Widows, orphans, whatever, were, were, were entitled to follow the reapers and, and pick up what they missed. That's called gleaning. And so that's all in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 and so on. That was provision for the destined. Now, it, it says, she happened on the field of Boaz. Now, you, when you see that word happened, you have to understand how the rabbis look at that. Uh, they say that uh, coincidence is not a kosher word. Nothing happens. It's ordained of God. And indeed it is, because Boaz turns out to have some very important uh, aspects to this. His name means, in him is strength. And it's, it, that's the name given to one of the two pillars in the temple. So you can run with that one on your own. And it's interesting, too, that Ruth is introduced to him by an unnamed servant. Remember what we learned in Genesis 24? What is the Holy Spirit? He's always an unnamed servant. Who is introducing this Gentile bride-to-be to Boaz, the kinsman redeemer? Unnamed servant. Now, he, he, she catches his eye, so he instructs his reapers, don't be too tidy, leave handfuls on purpose. <laughs> He is going to be the Goel in Hebrew, a kinsman redeemer. 
And we, to do understand that role, you need to understand the law of redemption in Leviticus 25. I'll give you a quick summary of it in a minute. But you also need to understand the law of Leverite marriage, which is one of the reasons I'm bringing it up here in Deuteronomy 25. Well, that brings us to chapter 3 of this little book. When she comes back from this field, Naomi recognizes she's got more than is reasonable. She smells a rat. Something's going on here. She realizes that when she tells him that she happens on this field of Boaz, Naomi, she doesn't understand, but Naomi does, that he's a kinsman. So she's got an opportunity here. Not only for Naomi, because he is entitled to get her land back that she sold 10 years ago. But she also, Naomi also recognizes that Ruth has the opportunity to impose on him the law of Leverite marriage because he's a, he's a near kin. He's not the next of kin, but he's a near kin. So she recognized, so Ruth wouldn't understand all this. Naomi explains this to her for the redemption of her land and for a whole new life for, for Ruth is what's at stake here. So she, Naomi, instructs Ruth on what to do. And so Ruth, the, the scene that sets up the scene where it's the thrashing floor, and again, it's one of these places they all work hard, but then night's a big party, and after the party they all sleep. But the, uh, the way they did a thrashing floor, they would, it was typically a, a saddleback place where there's a prevailing breeze. And they would thrash the grain, and the grain, would, being heavier, would fall short. The chaff would fall further down. The wind would carry it further. So if you did this right, you ended up with two piles. The close pile you bagged for market. The further pile you burned to keep away the vermin. And after that was all over, what you did, you had a big party. But the owners, the top guys, would arrange their sleep near the grain to vent theft and so forth. But it was a, you know, sort of a camp-out kind of thing. So came to pass at midnight. She's doing exactly what Naomi told her to do. That the, man was, the man's asleep. He, she, she was supposed to watch where he sleeps, and when it was dark and no one's around, Naomi, uh, Ruth was supposed to crawl up next to him and just sleep at his feet. Well, came to pass at midnight. The man was afraid, turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He was shook. He said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Verse 9 is misunderstood by most people because it sounds like she's propositioning him for a sleepover. No, that's not what's going on here. You have to understand the background. She's asking for much more than a one-night stand. The, the rank of a person in those days was in the hem of his garment. That's, just like we have stripes on a sleeve, they had a hem. Their rank was on the hem. That's why David cut off the genealogy of Saul on his rope and so forth. You have to understand the skirt was emblematic of the authority. God speaks of spreading his skirt over Israel, putting his protection, his authority over, you see. You follow that term, there's a whole, you, get into a whole, you can do a whole study on hems throughout the scripture. When the woman with the issue of blood, she wanted to touch the hem of his garment. Why the hem? Because that was in her mind the symbol of his authority. Anyway, what she's asking him to do is take her to wife to raise up kin. And the, next, the following verses make that clear because he realizes he, he's flattered. He's not, he's not, he's not, he's not, he's not going to copulate with her. Quite the contrary. This is a whole different thing. And at this point, you see this great plot unfolding. Because here's this handsome landowner. Here's your, 